Isaiah chapter 42, starting with verse 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, mine elect, in whom my soul delighted. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not cry, nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. He shall not fail, nor be discouraged, till he hath set judgment in the earth, and the isle shall wait for his law. Thus saith the Lord, God the Lord, he that created the heavens and stretcheth them out, he that spread forth the earth, and that which cometh out of it, he that giveth breath unto the people upon it, and spirit to them that walk therein. I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness, and will hold thine hand, and will keep thee, and give thee for a covenant of the people, for a light of the Gentiles, to open the blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from the prison, and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. I am the Lord, that is my name. And my glory I will not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. May a year ago, the United Presbyterian Church gave $10,000 to the Angela Davis Defense Fund. This was somewhat shocking to the Christian world and particularly to the members of the Northern Presbyterian Church. Why? What was the philosophy behind that. I believe the passage that we just read uh, impinges on this and gives us some insights into uh, the problems that we're wrestling with here. In the passage that we read, we find the servant of Jehovah introduced to us, Behold my servant. Now, Uh, We have brought before us in the first four verses the characteristic of Jehovah's servant. And then in uh, the next four verses we have the covenant with and through Jehovah's servant. First, the characteristics of Jehovah's servant. Who is this servant? The person. Who is the person uh, that we have brought before us here? We've been introduced in the 41st chapter of Isaiah, in the 8th verse, to the servant of God. It says, But thou, Israel, art my servant. There is the nation of Israel. Is this the nation of Israel? Again, we met in the 41st chapter the introductory comments about Cyrus, who later on is referred to as God's servant, to carry out a particular mission. This was a future ruler of Persia who hadn't even been born yet, but is mentioned and his coming is predicted. But neither one of those, neither Israel nor Cyrus, will fit what is said here about the servant. And so we begin to realize that the servant here is the Messiah. And we're correct in that interpretation because when we come to the New Testament, we find that this prophecy is specifically applied by Matthew to Jesus Christ, the Messiah. We read in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 14 following, Then the Pharisees went out and held a council against him, how they might destroy him. But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew himself from thence, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them. And he charged them that they should not make him known, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased. 
I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall show judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not strive nor cry, neither shall any man hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench, till he send forth judgment unto victory, and in his name shall the Gentiles trust. So this prophecy is said to have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and particularly in some of the aspects of his ministry. The servant is Jesus. Notice the position that he occupies, a servant and God's elect in whom God delights. Remember that God said of Jesus, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. We remember that Jesus is represented in Scripture as being God's co-equal being God the Son from all eternity, equal with the Father. But we read in Philippians 2 that though he was in the form of God, he thought equality with God not something to be clung to. But he emptied himself and took the form of a servant. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself even further and became obedient to God, even unto death on the cross, the cursed death, the death for our sins. Jesus, God's co-equal, took the form of a servant. Now, that was predicted here. That's the position he occupied. And this whole passage sets forth the characteristics of the Messiah, not just for our enlightenment, but for our emulation. Over in Philippians 2, it said, Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, thought equality with God not something to be clung to, but took the form of a servant. You do the same thing. The servant's position. Jesus says, I am among you as one that serveth. The Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. One great characteristic that has got to be part and parcel of our whole approach to the Christian life as a church and as individuals is being a servant, taking the place of a servant, serving God, surrendering to him, but serving our fellow man. Do you have a servant heart? Have you realized that this is part and parcel of the Christian life? Are you willing to do what Jesus did and humble yourself and take place and fulfill the, the actions of a servant toward your fellow man. Now, the second, uh, another thing that's brought out here as far as his characteristics is the provision that would be made for his work. It says, I have put my spirit upon him. We see who the person is, what his position is, but notice the provision for him to carry out his work. God would anoint him with his spirit. In his human body, he would be equipped for the task by the Spirit of God. You and I have the same equipment to fulfill our task as servants, and that's our only equipment. It's only in the strength of God's Holy Spirit as Christians. Once you're a Christian, you have the Spirit that you can fulfill such a servant task in the world. But you have the equipment if you're a Christian. And if you'll walk empowered by and under the control of God's Spirit, you will be able to serve God and your fellow man fruitfully. Again, uh, the prohibitions 
that would characterize his ministry. He shall not cry, nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the streets. What does that mean? Well, he won't be like earthly kings. When they come, they make great racket. They come conquering and to conquer. They come uh, arousing the multitudes. But he would not cry, nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. That's the aspect that Matthew dwells on in saying that this prophecy was fulfilled in a particular deed of Jesus. Instead of a violent confrontation with those who sought to destroy him, he withdrew himself. Instead of having those that he healed go out and emblazon his name on standards and put him up for mayor, he said uh, he forbade them to speak about their healing. He shall not cry, nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard. His methods of establishing his kingdom, the way of doing his work, was not the violent method of earthly rulers. It was not the ostentatious method of so many. We just sung in the hymn, Lead On, O King Eternal, these words, Not with swords loud clashing, nor roll of stirring drum, with deeds and of love and mercy the heavenly kingdom comes. Now, this is important, because Angela Davis was no accident. The gift of $10,000 was according to a very modern, prevalent, widespread philosophy in the church. Namely, that it is the responsibility of every genuine Christian to support such revolutionary activity as Angela Davis stood for, the overthrow of the existing order. The World Council of Churches, back uh, in 1970, gave $200,000 to 19 revolutionary organizations in Africa to help them overthrow the existing order. Well, how can they justify this? There's a helpful book that's out, written by Vernon Grounds, called An Evangelical Perspective, Revolution and the Christian Faith. And he traces for us the way such activity is justified. He <clears throat> says, in effect, that... Uh, if we will listen to the voices that are speaking, we'll begin to understand it. For instance, in 1966, at the World Council of Churches Conference on Church and Society, Dr. Castillo Cardenas, a Colombian, said this, If Christians are coming, <clears throat> Christians are coming more and more to realize that the present order is an affront to God because it's an affront, because it's an affront to man. And when they realize how many forms of force are employed in order to protect this unjust order against the underprivileged and oppressed, the poor and the weak, then if they really love their neighbor, they cannot content themselves with certain isolated reforms. What is required is to take power away from the privileged minorities and give it to the poor majorities. Therefore, he says, revolution is not only permitted, but it's obligatory for those Christians who see it as the only effective way of fulfilling love to one's neighbor. Again, to quote uh, 
professor on Latin America at uh, the uh, Hispanic American Institute in Austin, Texas, Dr. Laura Broad. He says, is it not violence that a man should die of old age at 28, that a woman should not feed the weakest of four children because there's just enough for the three who may survive, that 500 out of a 1,000 children should die in the countryside before the age of two, that uh, 80% should live on a yearly per capita income of $80? Uh, active resistance to such violence. He said, that's violent right there. Well, active resistance to that is just counter-violence. Again, uh, they would bring it to the footsteps of the United States, to the, and they would say that uh, America herself has an oppressive establishment that needs overthrowing. Uh, Fred Cook, writing in The Nation on the shame of the cities, points out that New York uh, has an eighth of its population, one million people, an eighth of eight million, living in squalor, in poverty, ten to a room, and so on. And uh, that uh, they are, many of them, uh, infected by rats, that there are more rats than people in New York, nine million rats, eight million people. says, now, this needs to be corrected. We've shown that we cannot correct it by any uh, reform efforts, and therefore what's needed is a violent overthrow of the whole order of the American government and the setting up of a more just order. Uh, this, you find uh, many theologians beginning to promote. For instance, uh, Harvey Cox at Harvard, Richard Shaw at Princeton Seminary. This is the way these men speak and write. And they would say, well, who are you as an American to complain about such a concept? Revolution is American, to use Rap Brown's phrase, as apple pie. They would say, we were born in revolution. How can we question revolution? They would quote, for instance, from Abraham Lincoln. In his inaugural address, Lincoln said, This country with its institutions belongs to the people who inhabit it. Whenever they shall grow weary of the existing government, they can exercise their constitutional right to amend it or the revolutionary right to dismember it or overthrow it. And they would say that we as Americans uh, ought to understand this principle that they're speaking to. Now, uh, the problem that you encounter with such concepts is, what do you do with Jesus? Can we justify such revolutionary activity in the name of Jesus Christ? Can the church of Jesus Christ uh, follow him? And do this. Colin Morris, a British missionary who served as president of the United Church of Zambia, has written, uh, Yes, he says, I believe a Christian is justified in using violence to win freedom in Rhodesia. And he says, My argument, however, stands or falls by Jesus' attitude to violence. And then he proceeds to decide, What is Jesus' attitude to violence? He says, First of all, you can't know very much about Jesus from Scripture because Scripture is not too reliable. The Jesus of the Gospels really is probably not a very accurate picture. And so he tries to dig behind the Gospels to find the true Jesus. And he comes up with Jesus as a freedom fighter. And he injustifies it by running some of the Scriptures through his interpretation of it, <clears throat> what the Scriptures are really trying to say. For instance, when the... When the uh, Pharisees were seeking to trick Jesus and they bring him a penny... 
Or they, they say, shall we pay taxes to Caesar? And he says, bring me a penny. Whose inscription is on it? They say Caesar's. He says, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. The traditional interpretation has been he's saying, obey Caesar. Pay your taxes. But also obey God. There are two spheres, church and state. But uh, Colin Morris says, well, what he was really saying is, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, that is, give Caesar what he's got coming to him, that is, let him have it in the neck. Well, <clears throat> that's scholarship. <clears throat> uh, this is the approach that they seek to use to make Jesus out a freedom fighter. Uh, and they go on to say for instance, uh, Morris quotes Brandon in his book, Jesus and the Zealots. And Brandon says that Jesus, because he did involve himself in uh, political activities, was less than impeccable and unsullied. A great man might in such circumstances retain his integrity, but never his purity, he says. When you get involved, you lose your purity, of course. And Jesus, of course, lost his purity then. He was not a sinless man. He says a sinless man would be a monster, a shapeless blur, lacking individuality. A sinless Jesus would bypass history instead of experiencing it. So we pick up that these men, although they profess to be Christians, are certainly not Christians in the biblical sense of the word. And when they issue their call to follow Jesus in Freedom fighting, it's not the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus of the Bible did not cry nor lift up nor cause his voice to be heard in the streets. His method was not that of violence. You remember when Peter took the sword to fight, Jesus said, Put up your sword. All they that take the sword shall perish by the sword. He said, My kingdom is not of this world, not a worldly kingdom. Then, If it were, then would my servants fight. He said, Resist not evil. Turn the other cheek. This was Jesus' whole approach. And so we really cannot justify violence uh, for the Christian in the name of Jesus Christ. Well, <clears throat> how do we justify the American Revolution? That leaves us with a problem, doesn't it? How do you justify the American Revolution? If you'd been living in the days of Washington and... Uh, Benjamin Franklin, would you have been a signer of the Declaration of Independence? Would you have joined in lent your support to, been a part of the American Revolution? Could you have done it as a consistent Christian? It's a good question. It's not easily answered. But it's interesting to note that the American Revolution grew out of the preaching of the Protestant pulpits of this nation. It was the, the Puritan preachers who gave the theological rationale to the American Revolution. Rusius Rushtani has traced this in his book, This Independent Republic. And he says, <clears throat> New England theology in the 17th century formulated the central principle of the American Revolution, namely, rebellion against an unlawful act is not rebellion but the maintenance of law. Rebellion is refusal to obey God. For we ought to obey God rather than man. To obey the ruler when he commands what is against God's law is thus truly rebellion, if you obey man rather than God. 
Third, since God's law is the fundamental law and the only true source of law, and neither king nor subject is exempt from it, war is sometimes required in order to defend God's law against the ruler. In other words, the American Revolution was in the interest of law and order, a just society. And uh, it was done with a sense of seeking to serve God in it. Versus the French Revolution. If you contrast the two, you get a feel of the difference, which was done in the name of anarchy, revolution for the hell of it, to use a modern phrase of our modern insurrectionists. That was the French Revolution versus your American Revolution. The American Revolution was the only revolution in history that was successful in actually establishing a more just society, a more just system of law and order than previously existed. However, that doesn't mean that as a Christian today I'm forced to choose between the revolution and the American way of life. Neither one's right. The American way of life today has certainly got any number of things that are wrong about it and that need changing. And the revolution's wrong. And as a Christian, I don't lend my support to either system in toto. As a Christian, I think that all of society must be brought under God's rule and that everything must be reformed until it conforms to the will of God. Now, I don't expect to see that happen in my day or in any day until Jesus comes back. But I do think that I'm called to bring every institution of our country under the scrutiny of the Word of God and where it is oppressive and where it is unjust and where it is materialistic, then I am to do what I can do to seek to reform it until it conforms to the Word of God. Meanwhile, I give my major energies to spreading the truth of Jesus Christ's gospel, that he died for our sins, in order that men's lives might be conformed and changed. That's my major thrust, because we're not setting up a kingdom of this world. We see here the prohibitions, then, that would characterize Christ and his people. They shall not cry, nor lift up, nor cause their voice to be heard in violence in the streets. A bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. What does that speak of? It speaks of his protectiveness toward the weak. Not only will he have the position of a servant, and not only will he have the provision of the Spirit, nor have these prohibitions, but he will exercise a protectiveness toward the weak. A reed is a weak thing. It's a bruised reed. It's even weaker, but he won't break it. The smoking flax is the wick. It's almost extinguished, but he won't put the flame out. He'll fan it into a greater flame. Where Jesus Christ finds grace in men's hearts, true faith, weak though it may be, he will bring it along. A weak faith saves, said Luther, if it's faith in Jesus Christ. Because, you see, once you put your hand in Jesus' hand, you can't turn loose. 
He's not going to let you. George Truitt was a great preacher of a bygone day, preaching on that verse, a bruised reed shall he not break, the smoking flax shall he not quench. He said, if you were going along and you found a little boy and he was lost, and he came up to you and he said, Mr. I'm lost. Can you help me? Could you take me home? You say, sure, son, put your hand in mine. He said, now, are you going to lose that boy on the way home? Are you going to let go of him? Well, God's not either. You put your hand in Christ's hand, and weak though that grip may be, he's not going to lose you. He will keep through faith those who put their trust in him. Again, we read of his perseverance, the perseverance that he will manifest in his work. He shall not fail, nor be discouraged, till he have set judgment in the earth, and the isle shall wait for his law. Seven hundred years before Jesus stepped into history as a man, Isaiah said, he will not fail nor be discouraged. It brings before us the fact that he'd have tremendous opportunity to fail, tremendous opposition, tremendous reason for discouragement, but he would persevere until he had established judgment in the earth, a universal kingdom. He finished one phase of it when he died. He died on the cross and he said, it is finished. He didn't fail. He could have called 10,000 angels. He could have quit. When they spit on him, when they beat him, he could have said, That's it! I quit! I'm going back to heaven! But he didn't. And Isaiah had said he won't fail nor be discouraged till he has set judgment in the earth, till he's established his kingdom. And he's going on now, establishing it person by person, a reign in the hearts of men, and he won't fail... He will carry that work out until in the time schedule of God, every last one that the Father has given to the Son comes to the Son. All that the Father hath given me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. This is the Father's will that sent me, that of all which he hath given me I should lose nothing, but should raise him up the last day. Not a one of those that the Father's given to the Son shall perish. And he will not fail until the last stone has been added to his living temple. And at that point, the second phase of his work will have been completed. And he will say, it is finished, and the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And then justice will be done everywhere in the earth. And there will be no oppression and no injustice. His purpose was universal. The place of it would be in the earth. The owls, the Gentiles, the nations shall wait for his law, shall believe in him. The way Matthew paraphrased it, the Gentiles shall hope in his name. As the great characteristics that Isaiah has brought before us of this servant of Jehovah. But notice the covenant, the covenant with and through the servant. In verse 6, I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness and will hold thy hand and will keep thee and give thee for a covenant 
of the people for a light of the Gentiles. This is God the Father talking to God the Son before history began, as we know it. And he says to his Son, I will give thee for a covenant. And the Son, in effect, says, Father, I will go, and I will be in myself the provisions of that covenant, and I will die for those that you are going to give to me. And he does come. And he takes a cup and he says, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sin. He is the covenant. In him all of the promises of God are yea and amen. And when we trust in Jesus Christ, we are partakers of the covenant. And we have all the benefits of the covenant. What are the benefits of the covenant? The purpose of it in verse 7, to open the blind eyes to bring out the prisoners from the prison and them that sat in darkness out of the prison house. Jesus came to bring light and liberty. He is the liberator. He opens the door of the prisoner house because all of us were in prison and there was no way out and we were blind and in chains. You remember Peter in prison? He's chained. He's asleep. And suddenly an angel appears before him and he wakes up and the dungeon is shining in light. His chains drop off, the gate swings open, and he walks out. As a picture of mankind and of you and of me in our sin, in the state that Christ came to set us free from. There's a lady present this morning. She sat in her place of occupation, bound in darkness, in sin, unable to free herself. She would see ministers come in and sit down. And in her heart, her heart would cry out and say, Why don't you come talk to me? I need help. But she wouldn't say anything. And then last week, during the Billy Graham crusade, a minister went in and sat down and began to talk to another person there. And she came over and sat down and he led her to Christ. She woke up. Her chains fell off. The dungeon flamed with light. She rose, went forth, and followed Christ. Happens all the time. That's what Christ came to accomplish. Has it happened in your life? Have you woken up? Do you see spiritually? You've been set free. Now you can do God's will for a change. You're not bound up by your own lust and controlled by sin. Is that true in your life? That's the covenant promise. That's the privileges of the covenant. He gives you a new heart. This is the covenant I will make with them. I will take the stony heart out of their flesh, give them a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within them and cause them to walk in my statutes and judgments and do them. I set you free to do my will. I'll tell you this. His glory he will not give to another, nor his praise to graven images. Nothing else going to do that for you. There's one way, one life, one truth, Jesus. He alone can free. I am the Lord, that is my name. And my glory I will not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. Give him glory. What about it? Are these divine principles being emulated in your life? Have you taken the place of a servant or do you think men are supposed to minister to you? 
Are you willing to humble yourself and go out and do anything in order to win your neighbor to Christ? Are you too proud? Who, me, witness? Make a fool of myself? What difference does it make if you make a fool of yourself? Jesus made a fool of himself in the eyes of men. Paul made a fool of himself in the eyes of men. But God honored it. And God will honor your taking the place of a servant. God will bless that. Serve. Unobtrusively, unostentatiously, humbly, quietly, spread the truth of Jesus Christ. He'll use you to bring men out of a prison, to set them free, to give them new lives. How about the divine promise for our encouragement? Are you one of those bruised reeds? You got faith, but man, you're beat down. You got a little spark, but it's about to go out. It's not going to go out. Trust Jesus. He'll fan it into a flame. He'll take that weak faith and he'll hold on to you and he'll build you up and he'll make you a man of God. He'll use you as a servant. Trust him. Don't be discouraged. He will not fail. What about the divine provision for your enslavement? Are you in the prison today? Are you blind? You can't break your own chains. You can't open your own eyes. But you can do what that blind man did. Blind Bartimaeus, when he heard Jesus was around, when he heard Jesus was passing by, he began to cry out and he said, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me! Jesus heard that spark. Jesus said, call him to me. And they brought him to him, and he said, What wilt thou that I do unto thee? And he said, Lord, that I might receive my sight. Jesus opened his eyes. You can do that. You can come to Jesus. He's passing by today. And you can say, Lord, have mercy on me. I'm in prison. I'm blind. Jesus opened my eyes. You can do it right now, and he will. Let us pray. If you want Jesus Christ to be Lord of your life, to set you free to do his will, if you're willing to trust him for that freedom that he died for to provide, if you're willing to have him as your covenant with God, right now in your heart, pray like this. Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. Open these blind eyes. Give me a new heart. Set me free from myself. I invite you to come into my life as my King. I trust you as my Savior. Amen.